Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 44, Mail Call Time. It's been a little over two weeks since I published my last episode on Israelology, and I haven't yet had time to really sit down and prepare an episode on any of the various topics I want to discuss next. So to fill the time until next episode, today I'm going to do something kind of easy, and I'm just going to read you some email interaction that I've had with some listeners and with a couple of hosts of other shows. First though, a heads up. If you're a follower on my blog or a fan of my Facebook page, you'll have noticed a couple of recent posts. Uh, in one of them, I explain that I'm looking for a guest that I can interview on the topic of the Eastern Orthodox Church. I'm looking for someone who has either come out of Eastern Orthodoxy and become an Evangelical Protestant, or someone whose ministry has a special focus on reaching out to people in the Orthodox Church. Uh, I've got a listener who periodically comments on my blog who's in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and one of my best friends also has an Orthodox friend. So I, I would love to be able to address this issue with someone who can speak authoritatively and compassionately about it. Some of you who have commented on Facebook and at the blog with suggestions, th thank you so much for those. I'm going to follow up. Um, but if there's anybody else listening who has any suggestions, please share them with me. I I'd really appreciate it. The second post you might have seen is, you might recall that several months ago I did three episodes with Dr. Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, uh, one of the podcasts I regularly promote. In those episodes, Glenn gave to, uh, gave to us his positive case for physicalism, that view which asserts that humans are not comprised of both a material body and an immaterial soul, but, but are just comprised of a material body upon which the mind is dependent. And he answered many of the common objections to his view. After those episodes, I was left on the fence, not seeing any legitimate reason to reject his view, but if for no other reason than tradition, I didn't give up entirely on dualism. Since then, it's come to my attention, as, as a result of talking both to some physicalists as well as to some dualists, that there are some serious Christological implications of physicalism, which are very difficult to accept from my perspective. And as it stands, right now these implications, more than any other, are preventing me from being comfortable affirming physicalism. I don't want to give all those away right now, just suffice it to say that I reached out to Dr. Peoples as well as to Nancy Murphy, a, a well-known physicalist, and both of them recommended that I talk to Dr. Joel B. Green for his answers to these challenges. Well, I did just that, and I'm excited to announce that he has agreed to come on the show to discuss them. So if you're one of those few who are interested in this particular discussion, even if you're adamantly opposed to Dr. People's position, I hope you'll stay tuned for this episode. I don't want to assume that the Christological implications are as problematic as they seem to be without at least first giving Dr. Green the chance to respond. And I hope you think that's important as well. Uh, anyway, also soon to come, Lord Willing, is an episode with an anon anonymous guest on the Restorationist movement, which includes churches like the Church of Christ, as well as with another anonymous guest on IHOP, the International House of Prayer. So I think we've got some good episodes lined up, and you know, I hope that you're looking forward to them as much as I am. Next up in my promo rotation was another show, but I've been intending for some time to add one of my favorite shows to the rotation, and since its host is one of the people with whom I've interacted over email as of late, and we're going to read some of that in a moment, I've inserted his show into the rotation a little early for this week. Have a listen. Well, how about it get going? Your show's almost on. Get ready to jump into the jury box. It's time for the Please Convince Me podcast. 
the only apologetics podcast hosted by a cold case homicide detective. It's time for some clear thinking Christianity as we explore an evidential faith in Jesus Christ together. Here's the host of the Please Convince Me podcast, Jay Warner Wallace. If what I think is happening is happening, it better not be. While those of us inclined toward presuppositionalism, preterism, and a young earth might disagree with Jim in certain areas, Please Convince Me is nevertheless an excellent show, and I highly recommend it. You might recall his appearance on my show some time back to talk about the reliability of the Gospels, which I thoroughly enjoyed. As a cold case homicide detective, Jim comes to the table with some unique talents that I think we should learn from. And I don't think you're going to find as many apologists as humble and as winsome as Jim is. So check out Please Convince Me at www.pleaseconvinceme.com and subscribe to the podcast, either in iTunes or the Zoom Marketplace. Uh, I've included links in the show notes for your convenience. So with that, let's move into today's episode. I'm gonna sit right down on this cold, wet, muddy ground and I'm gonna read In recent episodes of the Please Convince Me podcast, Jim has been tackling the problem of hell in the aftermath of the publication of Rob Bell's book. In answering one objection to the existence of hell, although for years he was pretty much on board with all five points of Calvinism, Jim in these episodes began expressing some doubt when it comes to irresistible grace, the I in Tulip. You can listen to the past few episodes to get that context and to hear more of what I said to him. I'm going to skip a little bit ahead uh, in our interaction and go to the most recent emails back and forth. But before I do, I just I want to point out that on the way into the office this morning, I listened to a debate between Dr. James White and Michael Brown, in which Brown offers what seems on the surface to be a plausible Arminian interpretation of John 6, uh, which is where the argument I offered to Jim comes from. I'll post links to the debate on my blog and on Facebook uh, so that we Calvinists can do some follow-up. But until then, for now, I remain convinced that what I offer to Jim, as you're going to hear, conclusively supports irresistible grace. So let's just go ahead and get into that. In one episode, Jim affirmed total depravity, saying that the unbeliever has an enmity, a hatred of God, which God must remove before someone can choose to follow Christ. But he wasn't convinced that the removal of this enmity resulted inevitably in saving faith, which is what Irresistible Grace would say. He used an analogy to explain this, saying that it's like we're all born hating anchovies, and so no one is going to choose to eat an anchovy pizza. But once that hatred for anchovies has been removed, someone can freely choose either to eat an anchovy pizza or not to. Now, I had challenged him with John 6:44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. But Jim felt that that could be understood in light of this analogy. He felt instead that there was still a philosophical problem if God's removal of the enmity we have toward him makes it inevitable that we would come to him. And so I'll pick up with that, and I wrote him this. It seems to me your primary objection is that passages which speak of making a choice strongly suggest that those whose enmity has been removed still must make a genuinely free choice. I don't particularly disagree and will in a moment attempt to use your own analogy to show how irresistible grace is compatible with that kind of freedom. First, however, a challenge. Can you show me anywhere in which the Greek word draw in John 6.44 is used to mean something weaker than an effectual moving of something from one place or state to another? 
Now as to freedom of choice, what if God, when he removes a hatred of anchovies, replaces it with an insatiable desire for anchovies? In choosing then to order the anchovy pizza, aren't you still exercising a free choice because you were capable of choosing otherwise, even though your newfound hunger for anchovies inevitably compelled you toward them? Of course analogies break down, but my point is that I don't think irresistible grace is incompatible with choice. God doesn't make the choice for you. He changes your heart, not only so that it is no longer at enmity with him, but so that it has an insatiable desire to know him. You freely choose then to turn to Christ, and yet you would have made no other choice. So in light of irresistible grace's compatibility with choice, the Bible's description of only two peoples in other passages, and Jesus' use of draw in John 6.44, I find irresistible grace to be what makes the best sense of scripture. Unquote. So that was a, an email that I sent him, and here was Jim's response. I totally agree that God draws, but drawing fish from the water, as the word is used, certainly does not mean that every fish stayed in the net. But more importantly, I would say that those who decide for Christ would ultimately have to say that they were drawn by God and that without God's drawing, they would never have decided. I am just hesitant to create a theology from our interpretation of draw, given that we have to look at analogous uses in the scripture to come to any conclusion. Also, I am not inclined to say that God necessarily replaces our hatred with an insatiable desire. Were that the case, I don't think God would need to provide us with any other evidence, the resurrection, miracles, prophecy, etc., as a desire would be sufficient and we wouldn't even need a case to be made for what we now want more than anything. While the scripture seems to affirm that God removes hatred here, I see no passage that says it is replaced with an insatiable desire." Unquote. Now, at this point, I began to write up a really long response to this, giving examples both inside and outside the Bible of how the Greek word for draws is used. But as I finished it, I stumbled upon something that was more important and more powerful. And so I put it at the top of the email, and that's the part I'm going to read for you now. I wrote, Where does the Bible say that the innate hatred of God is not simply removed, but is replaced by an insatiable desire for him? Well, again, I would point to draws uh, and would argue that such an insatiable desire is the most sensible means by which the Father does the work of effectually drawing the elect to Christ. I think it's also the most reasonable means by which the Father, uh, sorry, the most reasonable means by which, according to Paul in Romans 9, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And the potter has a right over the clay to make the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. There are other texts I might point to, but I think there's at least one very important argument that I missed in my previous emails. I know I've been appealing a lot to John 6, but there's a connection I failed to make in my previous emails. I've been focused like a laser beam, to use Michael Medved's terminology, on verse 44, where Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yes, I understand that while we have hitherto disagreed about what the drawing is, nevertheless, you recognize that it is necessary for someone to come to Christ. But look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. You see, while you might be able to argue that verse 44 says only that we are drawn in such a way that enables us to come to Christ, verse 37 says something profoundly stronger, that coming to Christ is the inevitable consequence of having been given to the Son by the Father. Notice that it cannot be that the Father gives to the Son those who come to him. No, it's precisely the other way around. Those who come to the Son do so inevitably because the Father gave them to him. This, to me, further strengthens my argument based on the Greek word for draws in verse 44. It seems to me that the Father drawing some to Christ is equivalent to his giving some to him. And verse 37 says that every single one of those will inevitably come to Christ. Unquote. I also addressed the question about the need for evidence in light of irresistible grace, and I'll get to that in a moment, but let's continue with this interaction concerning John 6. Jim responded, You know the expression, you, can't, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink? That's the way I see all the passages you've cited here. The sword is drawn, but can be replaced in the sheath. 
Paul can leave the temple after being drugged there. These all seem to be examples of dragging the horse to water, but unless the horse decides to drink, nothing happens. All the while, the horse actually likes the taste of water. Without being drugged, the horse dies of thirst because he cannot find his way on his own, but in the end, the horse, the horse must act. In, in hindsight, it can truly be said that those who came to Jesus had to first be drawn by the Father. So the best argument I think you offer is in John. Unquote. So Jim still didn't feel that the draws language was compelling, but he recognized that I had something perhaps persuasive there in John 6. And I presumed he was referring to verses 37 and 39, and so I responded briefly, writing, Fair enough, Jim. While I think the draws language is stronger than that, I've made the best case I can from that specific Greek word, so I won't for now press it further. However, I look forward to the argument you say I'll get to soon. But let me try and succinctly summarize the challenge you face in doing so. <laughs> yeah, right, me be succinct. If I understood your latest response, one can be drawn to Christ but not drink thereof, so to speak. But look again at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And now look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. In other words, there are no people given to the Son by the Father who will not be saved. It seems to me that to deny irresistible grace, verses 37 and 39 require you to say that the people given to the Son by the Father is only a subset of those whose enmity has been removed, since all of those given to the Son will be resurrected to eternal life. But that doesn't escape the problem, because still, those who come to Christ did so because the Father gave them to him. It's irresistible grace either way. And then here's how Jim responded. He said, yes, I do agree that it comes down to this set of verses for me, so let me ponder it a bit and parse it out, okay? The drawing language is not as persuasive in isolation of this verse. This verse is key. Do you have time to talk about this on the phone tomorrow afternoon? Unquote. And so we arranged to talk on the phone, which we did last Thursday afternoon. And I think it went great. We talked about some things, and, th and then we went through this passage verse by verse. And we agreed in the end that when Jesus says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. He is saying that coming to Jesus is the inevitable consequence of God's having first given somebody to the Son. I've not seen a le legitimate way of getting around this, and Jim agreed. It was an awesome, encouraging, friendly conversation, and in his latest episode, he talked about that and said he's now back in the five-point camp, and, and he adjusted his response to the objection to hell accordingly. Uh, you should check that out and subscribe to his show, whether he remains a five-pointer or not. <laughs> it's a great show, and although he is an evidentialist more than a presuppositionalist, um, even ardent presuppositionalists who, uh, who host other podcasts that I've spoken to have admitted to me that they enjoy Jim's work, and, and so you can too. <laughs> The Please Convince Me podcast and other resources, as I said, are available at www.pleaseconvinceme.com. Now, I mentioned that I responded to him regarding the need for evidence in light of his irresistible grace. Uh, and I think that that doesn't pose a problem for irresistible grace. And although we didn't talk about this, um, even though we didn't talk when we spoke on the phone about my response in that area, I figured I'd read it to you so you can tell me what you think of this defense. Here's what I wrote him. As for your second paragraph, theologians have long distinguished between what God chooses to do and the means by which he chooses to do it. Furthermore, just being given a heart that seeks after God does not necessarily mean that one immediately recognizes God and truth when one sees them. So if I'm right, God removes our enmity toward him and places in us a heart that seeks after him, and the means by which he reveals himself to those whose hearts now seek after him is by the kinds of evidences you've referred to. Let's further build upon the anchovy analogy. We all start out hating real anchovies. 
And, and yet we all have an anchovy-shaped hole that we seek to fill. And so pizzerias across the globe serve fake, unhealthy imitations of anchovies, and we gobble them up thinking we're satisfying the needs of our soul while continuing to refuse to eat genuine anchovies. God removes our hatred of real anchovies, and yet we still have all these fake anchovies being peddled by the world. So the one true pizzeria that serves genuine anchovies provides all sorts of evidences that they're serving the real deal. Scientific analyses, personal testimonies, eyewitnesses to the pizzeria owners having personally caught, killed, and prepared the anchovies, and so on and so forth. None of these evidences are compelling to those who still hate genuine anchovies because they don't want genuine anchovies anyway. But for those who have a newfound, insatiable desire for genuine anchovies, these evidences demonstrate that this one true pizzeria is serving the real deal. And so we are compelled by our desire to dine there. And we still make the choice to eat there. The pizzeria owner doesn't make that choice for us. So I just don't think the evidence issue serves as a real challenge to irresistible grace, nor does the free choice issue. So I hope that uh, you find that useful. That was my interaction with Jim Wallace, and again, check out his podcast. And now I'm going to move on to some feedback that, um, that I had, some interaction that I had with an emailer about total depravity. Recently, my friend Dee Dee Warren, host of the Preterist podcast, a podcast I recommend you check out, she converted recently from a Molinistic Arminianism to a five-point Calvinism, which has me thrilled and encouraged. In the latest episode of her podcast, episode 41, in, that she calls Welcome Back Potter, she exclaimed, it's, boy, I'm slipping over my speech. She explained what convinced her. On her Facebook page where she announced and linked to the episode, some conversation ensued, and at one point a listener named Sean attempted to respond to Dee Dee's primary argument by saying Calvinism doesn't have an answer to why some of the soils in Jesus' analogy temporarily accept the seed but then fall away. It quickly became heated and I encouraged Sean to email me so I could point out to him an error that he made, an offer he took me up on. Here's what I wrote to him. Let's talk about what I think is the most glaring one first. The most glaring error, that is, sorry. <clears throat> Resuming what I wrote. You wrote, Sean, As for some biblical reasons why some believe and others do not, I would refer people to Luke eight eleven to 15 and the parallels, which is very insightful, especially since some believe for a while and then fall away. Yet how are they able to believe, even for a short time, if faith is a gift of God? Does God regenerate people only to let them fall away when trials come? And please don't tell me their belief wasn't a true God-given saving faith. If that is so, then you've given up the whole debate. This would be admitting man can actually believe before regeneration. This is what, that was what Sean wrote. I go on. Herein lies what I think was your most glaring error. You've intentionally or unintentionally set up a straw man by implying that Calvinists teach that one cannot have faith of any sort prior to regeneration. But that's not our position. In the second chapter of his epistle, James distinguishes between two kinds of faith, one which is dead or inanimate, and one which is living and saving. Jesus indicates in Matthew 7 that there are some who have a professed faith which isn't saving. And 1 John 2.19 describes people who left the faith, proving they were never truly part of the body of Christ. You see, one can on some level intellectually affirm belief in Christ without ever being truly regenerate, without, without ever truly believing that he is a sinner in need of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice in order to be saved. You can certainly debate us on the falling away passages and what implications they have when it comes to the P and tulip, perseverance of the saints, otherwise known as eternal security. And indeed, every Calvinist enjoys debating those passages. However, what you cannot legitimately do is say that if we respond by saying their faith wasn't genuine, that we've then given up the whole debate. That is a glaring error, for we're not saying that someone who falls away ever had genuine faith to begin with. 
and we have several passages at our disposal that do seem to distinguish between a false faith and a true faith, only the latter of which is the result of God's regenerative work. So I hope you'll agree that although you were not convinced by our case, nevertheless your characterization of our response to Luke 8.11.15 was in error. Unquote. Now this didn't satisfy Sean, and it was because I apparently missed Sean's point. I'm, you know, I'm really not sure how much I missed his point, but he seems to think I did, and there might be a certain element of truth in that. He, expounded, he, he explained what he meant in response to that email, writing, My problem with your explanation is not that some people profess faith but are not actually saved. My problem is that I do not understand why, if total depravity is true, someone would profess faith if they are not saved. Unquote. Sean went on to quote some Reformed theologians, and then he said this, It's interesting that while on the one hand these Reformed theologians conclude man, can, uh, man not only cannot believe, but that man would never believe, because the more he hears of it, the more he dislikes it. If unregenerate man absolutely hates God, why would he believe ever? I'll try and drive my point further. You mentioned, Matthew, where Jesus said he never knew them. Yet these people are surprised by this. They thought they were, in fact, saved, but had served Jesus in vain. So again, I'm not concerned about the issue over if their faith was genuine or not. My concern is why they would believe at all. Why would they do many mighty works in Jesus' name and suspect that they were saved only to find out that the God they served was all in vain? If I were to believe the doctrine of total depravity, I could only conclude that unregenerate man would never serve God because even the thought of it is against his very nature. These ideas, uh, these two ideas don't mesh. This is why I made the comment. To me, it's not a straw man. To me, to say, a, uh, to say man cannot and will not believe because it's against his nature on the one hand, and then say, sure, man can believe and serve Jesus his whole life thinking he served him uh, well until he dies, simply seems like a logical fallacy, unquote. And then he went on to say something to the effect of uh, this would, total depravity might make sense if all unbelievers were atheists. Uh, but not if they were following after false gods. So you can see that Sean's problem with total depravity is basically that if that he thinks if total depravity were true, an unregenerate unbeliever could not live a life apparently attempting to seek God and expressing any kind of faith in God at all. Uh, so here's what I wrote in response. I said, first, you do indeed continue to present the doctrine of total depravity in the form of a straw man easily knocked down. It is true that if the doctrine were that unregenerate people cannot in any sense affirm faith in Christ, then a Calvinist would be illogical and inconsistent in affirming that some unregenerate people do affirm some level of faith. But this isn't the doctrine of total depravity. I think several of the sources you cited said it well. One of them said, but in the significant sense in which it is used in the Bible, which is man is free to do what he ought to do, which is repent of his sins, turn from his wickedness, surrender his life to Christ, and follow him in godliness, unregenerate man is not free to do that. In the passages I cited, distinctions were made between a genuine faith which saves and an inanimate faith which does not. One can say they follow and serve Christ, but if one is not truly penitent, has not truly turned from wickedness, has not truly surrendered one's life to Christ, and does not truly follow him in godliness, all those things that this, uh, all, all, one of the, all these things that this, this source that Sean cited had mentioned, one's professed faith is meaningless. Another source you cited said, Our mind, our will, our emotions, our memory, our conscience, all of these are things affected and impacted and are predisposed toward corruption and evil. Is it not corruption and evil for Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses to profess faith in false, unbiblical views of God and his Messiah? Of course it is. Another source you cited said, So he can never do anything good as far as God is concerned. Certainly faith in a false Christ, a false God, a false gospel is not good as far as God is concerned. 
And yet another source you cited said, Until God the Holy Spirit changes the disposition of my soul, I will never have faith in Christ. I will never embrace him. I will never decide for him in any redemptive way. Like a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness, one certainly can profess a faith in Christ, which is, by virtue of being placed in a false Christ, a false God, a false gospel, is not redemptive. So, Sean, the doctrine of total depravity actually predicts that unregenerate unbelievers will often make some claim to faith, since faith in a, go in a false gospel is an expression of hatred toward the true God. You see, the doctrine of total depravity does not say that unregenerate man will never claim to have faith. It says that the unregenerate man will never place saving faith in the true Christ, the true God, the true gospel. You may disagree, of course, but there simply is no illogical inconsistency in affirming total depravity, while at the same time recognizing a distinction between true saving faith and false inanimate unsaving faith. So while I appreciate that it was not intentional, nevertheless it was a glaring error to present a straw man of Calvinism as saying unregenerate man cannot claim to have faith of any sort. <clears throat> now Sean responded to that. He wrote, The reality is many people seek to serve God in wrong ways. I think this proves man does seek God and does seek to please God, albeit wrongly. Why would a Muslim give so much of his life to religion if every inclination of his heart was against God? If all non-Christians were atheists, he might have a point. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I spoke ahead earlier. Uh, anyway, he goes on. But with so many people seeking something beyond themselves, I think you have a high hill to climb to make your point obvious. If man is led by his own greatest desire, why would that include belief in any God? And then he quotes Acts 17, 23 to 27 and Romans 10, 1 to 3. And he says, it seems these people, even who don't know, even who don't know how to serve God correctly, still try. I don't know why they would try at all if the doctrine of total depravity were true, unquote. And so here's what I wrote back in response. I said, incorrect throughout. The doctrine of total depravity, in contrast with the straw man you continue to present, does not say that the Bible teaches that no one senses an internal void and seeks false gods to fill it. Quite the contrary, as you're no doubt aware, Calvinists are quick to point to Romans chapter 1 when it comes to total depravity. And what does Paul say there? That no one seeks after God and thus becomes atheists? Nope. He says, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. You see, you're simply wrong in your characterization of and assumptions about total depravity. In no way does it, or must it, suggest that unregenerate man will tend toward atheism. No, not at all. As Paul clearly states, unregenerate man will tend toward belief in false gods. This is why I said total depravity actually predicts false faiths in false gods. By nature, we hate the true God and willfully suppress the inward knowledge about himself which he gave us, and so we turn toward false imitations of him. So I've demonstrated conclusively that you have, in fact, presented a straw man of total depravity. I'm not, I'm not asking you at this point to agree with the doctrine, but I do exhort you to cease misrepresenting it." Unquote. Now at this point, unfortunately, Sean objected to some of my harsher language, such as where I said incorrect throughout, and you're simply wrong, and I've demonstrated conclusively that you have, in fact, presented a straw man. He felt that I was being aggravating and combative. And if you think I was being unloving in writing these words, let me know, and, and perhaps by the testimony of multiple witnesses, I will see that I've, uh, that I've got something to repent of. But it is true that I demonstrated conclusively that his argument against total depravity, at least this argument, is based on a straw man. And because I think it's so important that we debate what are actually our positions and not frail imitations of them, I exhorted him not to agree with the doctrine, but yes, to cease misrepresenting it. 
You see, in Sean's final response, and, and then he, he stopped, he didn't want to discuss it anymore because of what he felt was harsh language for me. In his final response, he wrote me, You are bent on defending how I characterize total depravity without even pro first proving the doctrine is valid in the first place. My points are not straw men if total depravity is false, unquote. But you see, that's exactly what I'm asserting is not the case. Even if a doctrine is false, such as total depravity might be, that does not mean that any attempted argument against it is legitimate. That's just nonsense. Misrepresenting a doctrine in order to more easily knock it down is not a legitimate way to demonstrate the falsehood of a doctrine. And when the observer sees it so misrepresented, it's only going to make that which is misrepresented seem more plausible. So yes, Sean's points are straw men, even if total depravity is false. Oh, and by the way, Sean, if you're listening, I did repeatedly tell you I was looking for you to give me an opportunity to prove the doctrine valid in the first place. It was you who insisted on challenging my view of the straw man, repeatedly, and yes, it was important to me that you properly understand the doctrine before I attempted to defend it. Otherwise, you'd be asking me to defend a view I don't hold. Anyway, if you listeners have ever been unsure how to respond to this particular challenge to total depravity, perhaps this will help. Total depravity doesn't say nobody will seek God in any sense at all. As Romans 1 demonstrates, people will seek false gods and false Christs and false gospels uh, because to do so is sinful and expresses the very hatred of God we all innately share. All right, well, let's move on to some uh, some other email interaction that I had. This is with a, um, this is on the topic of Israelology. A listener named Travis Finley recently began commenting on various of my podcasts, and I've been really encouraged by his support. He's actually started a podcast of his own. I've listened to the first episode, which is in two parts, and I enjoyed what I heard. Assuming that over time it's clear he's completely orthodox, which I believe at this point he is, I may start including a show in my promo rotation. In the meantime, go check it out. It's called Theologians Don't Know Nothing. And you can search in iTunes for Theologian. That's <laughs> that's T H E U H L O G I A N. Or you can go to theologian.podbean.com. Anyway, although we have many areas of agreement, Travis and I do disagree on at least one point: Israel. We spoke on the phone about it for a little while, and, and he's given me some reasons why he doesn't share my view, and uh, we talked about doing an episode of my show together in the future, discussing our disagreement in a friendly and respectful way. In the meantime, however, he left me some comments on episode 6, uh, where my friend David Jerislow and I answered the question, who is a Jew? I responded to him in email, and since I quoted his comments in full, I'll start with this email that I first sent him. I wrote, quote, your first point was this. Quote, I don't believe the guest makes a good case that he is able to give insight into the Jewish culture any more than a good commentary would. He grew up a secular Jew, for example. He converted to Christianity and had to reorient his own thinking. It doesn't seem to me that he is any more an expert on being a first century Jew than a Christian Hebrew scholar. And so I feel there is a bit of will to power going on. Unquote. While I agree with you that modern Jewish culture isn't the same as first century Jewish culture, I don't agree that this means a modern Jew's perspective offers nothing that a good commentary would. Whereas both, modern, while, whereas both modern Jew, Gentiles and Jews are some 2,000 years removed from the time of the Apostles, I do think the case can be made that the culture gap isn't as wide between modern Jews and first century Jews as it is between modern Gentiles and first century Jews. Certainly there is a cultural divide even between modern Jews and first century Jews, but I see no reason to believe that there is literally nothing of Jewish culture that has, survi that has survived the years. I think it's reasonable to believe at least some elements of that culture survived. I believe the Bible speaks to this, in fact, in Romans 11. There, Paul says that if you Gentiles were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature, 
into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So he explains here that there's a degree to which a branch broken off a tree will more naturally take to its own tree than another tree. And in the same way, there's a degree to which a Jew will more naturally take to the gospel than a Gentile. Or so it seems to me. Of course, as Reformed believers, you and I know that that's not going to happen without God's sovereign election. Nevertheless, an elect Jew, it seems to me, is in some sense and to some degree going to more naturally take to certain elements of the gospel than a Gentile. I could be wrong, and I'm open to correction, but because I believe it's reasonable to believe that at least some elements of Jewish culture have survived the centuries, and because I believe Paul's olive tree analogy suggests that the gospel is, in a sense, naturally Jewish, I therefore do believe Jewish believers have a unique perspective to offer that should be taken seriously, but not authoritatively. Next, he wrote, quote, Greg, and, and actually he's referring to David, makes the point about Paul's comment to the Jew first, and I have a question. Are we to follow this maxim today? When we go into a new area, are we obliged to find the local Jewish community and go there? Unquote. Great question. I have my thoughts, but I don't think a legitimate hermeneutic is to assume we know the right answer to those questions and then interpret scripture in light of our presumptions. I would rather seek to let the Bible answer those questions for me. And in the two episodes David Jerislow and I have done in this series, we've only offered up the conclusions that A, a Gentile is not a Jew in any sense, and B, the church is not Israel in any sense. I think these foundational issues need to be understood first before getting to the questions you asked, and so I'm going to table that question for now. Now, you answered your own questions, however, as follows, quote, I don't think so, and the reason I don't, I'm sorry, the reason, he's saying I don't think that we should, that we are obliged to find the local Jewish community and go there. He says, I don't think so, and the reason I don't is AD 70. Until the destruction of the temple and God's divorcing Israel, the distinctions persisted. After that, they are finally removed, never to be reinstated, unquote. I disagree for a couple of reasons. First, whatever we conclude about the, quote, divorce of Israel, its permanence and its implications concerning Israel's relationship with the church, I don't believe it's at all legitimate to therefore conclude that the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been finally removed, never to be reinstated, as you said. The reason is because the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional, very clearly, whereas the Mosaic covenant was conditional, very clearly. If God is a keeper of his word, therefore God's certificate of divorce can only apply to the relationship born out of the Mosaic Covenant. But the Mosaic Covenant is not what creates a distinction between Jew and Gentile. The unconditional Abrahamic Covenant is where God promised a specific people and nation to arise through a specific lineage, and not, as we'll get to momentarily, only through Abraham. And from other passages my guest and I referred to in episode 43, we have further evidence that this promise was to be kept perpetually. Therefore, no matter what the sense is in which God divorced Israel, it has no bearing on whether or not there is a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Second, this view that the distinctions between Jew and Gentile passed away after the destruction of the temple is interesting conjecture at best and goes contrary to the unconditional nature of the promise which created the distinction to begin with. And it seems to go contrary to the New Testament which talks about distinctions which already did not exist at that time. Galatians 3.28 says in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. Romans 10.12 says in Christ there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Of course, all such passages speak of a particular kind of distinction not existing between Jew and Gentile, namely salvific ones. For all are saved in the same way in Jesus Christ. But the point is, since the Bible already speaks about senses in which distinctions do not exist between Jew and Gentile at the time of the Apostles' writing, and never speaks of some further distinction disappearing at the destruction of the temple, there seems to be no warrant for believing that all meaningful distinctions disappeared at the destruction of the temple. Next he wrote, quote, Regardless of whether or not David says he doesn't endorse a second-class Christianity, I feel, and he put that in quotes, that it is still inevitable. 
Well, feelings are interesting, but until you can give me specifics, I don't really know how to respond. And in your last comment, you said, quote, David says there's no distinction in regards to salvation, re these people groups. D.D. Warren is fond of quoting, wherever you go, there you are. What David says here is nonsensical. Salvation has always been the same for all people groups. No distinction, unless I misunderstood, unquote. Sure, you and I might understand that salvation has always been the same for all people, but did Paul's first century Jewish contemporaries understand that? Of course not. Many of them thought there certainly was a salvific distinction between Jew and Gentile. And it's no surprise, for in the Old Testament, a sojourner in the land of Israel could not partake in Passover festival, uh, God-ordained religious festivals like Passover unless they were circumcised and henceforth lived as a Jew. Um, now I'm going to uh, step aside from my email here because in a link that he sent me, um, there does seem to be an argument that sojourners had more privileges than I suggest here. But I'm going to have to address that in the future. For now, I'm just going to continue with my email. I go on. I am also fond of Didi's use of wherever you go, there you are. However, if Paul's audience thought something different, such as wherever you were, there you are, we would expect him to correct them. In the same way, <coughs> excuse me, in the same way, the distinction passages like Galatians 3.28 and Romans 10.12 were necessary to combat the impression that many first century Jews had that salvation through faith in the Messiah was only available to Jews. What is clear, however, is that none of these passages can be pointed to as evidence that no distinction exists whatsoever. I'm sure you and I are on the same page, or at least nearly so, about women in leadership. Paul, the same one who said there was neither Jew nor Greek, went on to say there is neither male nor female, and yet he also said, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So some distinction does exist between male and female, and so there's no warrant for assuming there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. You went on, uh, quote, also Romans 2 is about equivocating, uh, equating the Gentile God-fearer with the Jew based on faith, and this, and this leads, I believe, into a truer sense of the New Testament's point of view, that faith is what makes one a descendant of Father Abraham, not blood, unquote. I don't believe your interpretation of Romans 2 is sound. First, it should be noted that the following commentators all understand verses 17 and following to be speaking about an ethnic Jew. Adam Clark, James Burton Kaufman, Albert Barnes, John Darby, yeah, yeah, I know, John Gill, the 1599 Geneva Study Bible, David Guzik, Robert Jameson, arguably, Matthew Henry, and A.T. Robertson. Even R.C. Sproul and John Calvin, uh, even R.C. Sproul and John Calvin understand these verses to be directed at ethnic Jews. Of course, our rule of faith is the Bible, not commentators. Nevertheless, it's worth noting how novel your interpretation appears to be. As Didi has also said, theological novelty is not a good thing. Second, the context of verses 17 and following has Paul explaining that there is no salvific difference between Jew and Gentile. This is clear from verses 9 to 11 and perhaps less clear from those which follow. Your understanding of verses 17 and following seem quite out of place with Paul's point. Third, look how the following chapter opens. Then what advantage has the Jew? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. He goes on to say, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It can hardly be any clearer that the Jew being spoken of at the end of chapter 2 is the Jew spoken about in chapter 3, which is the ethnic Jew. So no, I just don't see your interpretation of Romans 2 as being sound. More to the point, however, in response to your statement that faith is what makes one a descendant of Father Abraham, not blood. I would rhetorically ask, so what? David and I addressed that very point in episode 6. Jews are not descendants only of Abraham. Ishmael was a descendant of Abraham, for example, and was not a Jew. Esau was a descendant of Abraham and was not a Jew. Only those who were descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are Jews. So the fact that Gentile Christians are by faith descendants of Abraham in no way suggests that Gentile Christians are in any sense Jews. Consider that as pertains to this discussion, there were three provisions in the Abrahamic covenant. One, Abraham would become one great nation, Genesis 12.2 and Genesis 18.18. 18. 
Two, Abraham would become many nations, Genesis 17, 4 to 6. Three, in Abraham would all the families of the earth be blessed, Genesis 12, 3. While all, uh, sorry, while all of these are part of the same unconditional promise to Abraham, nevertheless, these are three separate provisions. They are mutually exclusive in meaning. In the New Testament, the authors apply some of those provisions to Gentiles in the church. In Romans 4, Paul says that in a spiritual sense, the second provision above, that Abraham would become many nations, is fulfilled by Gentiles in the church by saying, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham. In Galatians 3, Paul again says Gentiles in the church are a fulfillment of the second provision above when he says it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. But in this epistle, he also says Gentiles in the church are a fulfillment of the third provision above. In Abraham would all the families of the earth be blessed. When, <clears throat> when he writes that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying all the nations will be blessed in you. So yes, provisions two and three in my list of three are fulfilled by Gentiles being saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Yes, we are spiritual descendants of Abraham, and yes, we are blessed in Abraham. But to my knowledge, the first provision above is never applied to the church or to Gentile believers in the New Testament. Never does any author in scripture say that Gentile and Jewish believers together are the one great nation promised to Abraham, at least not that I've found. Therefore, the fact that faith is what makes one a descendant of Father Abraham, not blood, is irrelevant when it comes to whether or not there is a meaningful distinction between Jew and Greek. Finally, in your latest email to me, you said, Again, my position on 8070 is key. After 8070, theologically speaking, the Jews cease to exist. Ethnically, they still exist, but are no more than white Americans are in the scheme of, in the scheme of things. Unquote. And I wholeheartedly disagree. As I explained to you on the phone, my position on Abraham is key. While the Mosaic Covenant may have been obsolete, or may have become obsolete, and while God may have divorced Israel in a sense, because God's promise to Abraham was unconditional, which is demonstrable in at least a couple of different ways, the passing away of the Mosaic Covenant and God's divorce of Israel can have no bearing on the provisions of the unconditional Abrahamic Covenant, which is where the distinction between Jew and Gentile originated." Unquote. So I know that was a really long email. Israelology is uh, a passion of mine, <laughs> for better or for worse. Um, but anyway, there's still more to read, and, and hopefully it won't take as long, and then we'll move toward the end of the episode. Uh, in response to what I just wrote above, Travis wrote, My initial thought is to point out that I do not accept that the idea of covenant allows for its being unconditional, so we'll need to argue terms. In your opinion, what limits the account of the Abrahamic covenant in the Genesis account? That is, it begins in Genesis 12, but where does it end? Unquote. Now I will confess some surprise that a Reformed theologian would say a covenant can't be unconditional. I would ask, and, and one day will, to be sure. In fact, if Travis is listening right now, he'll hear my question and probably email me, which is awesome. But I would ask him, what conditions a believer who has entered into the new covenant must keep in order for the provisions of the new covenant to remain in effect? Now, he might say that one must continue in faith. But as Reformed believers, I think we would both agree that the reason any saint perseveres, to use the language of Tulip, is because it is God who chooses for the believer to do so. So the covenant, covenant is still effectively unconditional in that it is God who ensures that the one covered by the blood of the new covenant continues to meet whatever conditions it requires if you say that it has any conditions. It is ultimately God and not the believer who meets those conditions. Anyway, I didn't pursue that for now. I really wanted to answer Travis' questions towards me. So first, to clarify what I mean by the Abrahamic covenant being unconditional, I wrote this. Quote, there were no conditions which, if not met by Abraham or his descendants, would free God from his commitment to follow through with his promises. 
This does not mean there were not conditions which Abraham and his descendants could fail to meet and thus break the covenant. For example, Genesis 17 makes it clear that if a descendant of Abraham were not circumcised, he would be cut off from his people. However, such a one's breaking of the covenant would not free God from his commitment to follow through with his promises. Sure, such a disobedient one would be killed, but God would not be free to choose not to make Abraham into a great nation, multiply his descendants, bless the Gentiles and Abraham, etc. Unquote. So this is what I mean when I say the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional. While people could fail to obey the commands of God as part of that covenant and could be killed, that's not relevant to whether or not God would keep him, uh, would, whether or not God would keep his side of the covenant. Uh, that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that many nations would come out of him, and that all the nations would be blessed through him. The stoning of the disobedient Jew would not free God to choose not to follow through with those things. Now, here's how I emailed him to answer his question about where the covenant begins and ends. Quote, here's how I would answer your question in brief. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 and 7. Genesis 13, 14 to 17. Genesis 15, 1 to 21. Genesis 17, uh, verse 21. I think I missed something there, but there's something in Genesis 17 there. And Genesis 22, 15 to 18. Now, I suppose one might try and argue that not all of these declarations on the part of God are part of the so-called Abrahamic covenant. In other words, perhaps only those places in the passages above where the word covenant is used uh, contain the true provisions of the covenant. If that's your position, I will follow up explaining why I disagree. In the meantime, it should also be noted that Genesis 26, 2-5, and 24 contributes to our understanding of the covenant with Abraham and establishes that if one wishes to argue that there were conditions which, if unmet, would free God not to follow through with his commitments, Abraham met them, and so God would still be bound by his promises. Parenthetically, I should clarify at this point that when I say things like God is not free or God would still be bound, I'm only saying that God's nature is such that he infallibly chooses to keep his promises. Anyway, additionally, Genesis 28, 13-15 appears to further contribute to our understanding of the covenant with Abraham. Unlike Genesis 26, where God explicitly refers to the oath he made to Abraham, this passage does not. Still, the pattern is so undeniably similar to Genesis 26 that I think it's a fair assumption that the oath to Abraham is what's in view. I would add that in Exodus 2, 23-25, God remembers his covenant, singular, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the case of Isaac, as Genesis 26, 2 to 20, uh, Genesis 26, 2 to 5 and 24 suggests, his promise to Isaac appears to be a reconfirmation of, or grounded upon, his promise to Abraham. And I think the same is true of Jacob. In other words, these are not three separate covenants, but one covenant with Abraham, reconfirmed to Isaac and Jacob. And if there were any conditions which would free God to not choose to follow through with his commitments, they were met by Abraham, Genesis 26, 5. Other passages which shed further light on all of this would include Exodus 6, 2-8, Exodus 32, 11-14, Deuteronomy 34-4, or 34-4, Nehemiah 9, 7-8, 2 Kings 13, 22-23, 1 Chronicles 16, 15-19, 2 Chronicles 20, 7-8, and Psalm 105, 7-12. In the New Testament, there's some further confirmation of some of this, including Luke 1, 54-55, and 68-73. Now, if your question is hinting toward the notion of the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants being one and the same, when you said, where does it end? Consider Galatians 3, 15-18, where Paul explicitly says that the latter Mosaic covenant, which he calls the law, does not invalidate or nullify the former Abrahamic covenant. And Paul says that the former was based on a promise, unlike the latter. In Hebrews 6, 13-20, the author goes to great lengths to further define what is meant by the Abrahamic covenant being a promise, describing it as unchangeable by virtue of God having sworn by no one but himself. One additional passage that should be considered is Leviticus 26, 40-42. There God remembers his covenant with Abraham, and it would seem to be conditioned upon the faithfulness of Israel. 
To whatever extent it is in this way a conditional, what it cannot mean, based on everything above, is that there could ever be a point in time in which that covenant ceases to be in effect. At most, God may temporarily withhold certain of the provisions promised to Abraham, but they never become promises to another people group and never cease being in effect. Unquote. This is a lot of reading. I apologize. (laughs) Um, Anyway, here was how Travis responded to that. He said, I can see this will descend into endless volleys, and so I need to read what I'd like to address in particular. In the meantime, I see very clearly that what needs to change from your point of view is your presuppositions and theology as a whole. For me, typology is key. Everything is a type that moves towards a better fulfillment. As I said before, the Judaizers wanted to keep their big wheel but when Jesus wanted them to start, uh, when Jesus wanted them to start writing a Harley Davidson, holding onto the land as the promise is like being satisfied with the wedding rehearsal and never moving to the wedding night. But like I said, I'll need to process how to begin to redress your theology. Unquote. Now, of course, you could probably guess that I have some responses to the big wheel argument. Um, and you know, let me just point out, I agree that typology is important and, and I don't disagree necessarily that the promise to Abraham and that Israel are typological. The question is whether or not when the fulfillment arrives, if the type disappears, um, certainly we could talk about Hebrews and as I've already indicated in here, I think that's referring to the Mosaic covenant, not to every single type and, and shadow. Anyway, at this point, I'm going to give Travis the time and space to figure out exactly what he wants to address in particular. Um, I just want you listeners to know, and Travis as well, if he's listening, that I am open to correction, honestly. You know, in the course of time that I've been a believer, I've gone from an old earth creationist to a young earth creationist. I've gone from an Arminian to a Calvinist. Uh, I've gone, I've changed my position on Israel. I've, I went from a futurist to a preterist, and, and on and on it can go. Um, so I'm open to correction. If you listeners want to comment on this as well and get into the debate, I'm open to that. Um, I just want to make sure that my view is based on scripture and not any sort of philosophy that's read into it. Anyway, in the future, you may get to hear us hash these issues out together. Um, or if that doesn't happen, I'll at least tell you how the discussion moves forward. In the meantime, while Travis and I disagree profoundly concerning this and some other issues, nevertheless, he has been kind and I enjoyed the first episode of his podcast and I would encourage you to check it out as well. It's Theologians, that's T-H-E-U-H-L-O-G-I-A-N-S, Don't Know Nothing, available in iTunes and at theologians.podbean.com. So now let's move on to the last topic. Um, I've got two email interactions to read, and they're both concerning oneness Pentecostalism. Um, there's a, after the debate that I moderated between Mike and James on the pre-existence of the Son of God, Mike and I did what in my industry is sometimes called a post-mortem, talking about what went well, what didn't go so well, stuff like that. Now, despite the fact that this kind of follow-up seems pretty normal, James White and Bill Craig both do it in their shows, for example, perhaps unsurprisingly, several Oneness Pentecostals viewed this as a patch-up job, suggesting it was at best inappropriate for us to do so, and that we should have just let the debate speak on its own, or worse, that we felt so beaten up that we had to do damage control, bandaging our wounds. I'll let you decide for yourselves. But in a comment left in response to this follow-up, Mike and I did, someone named Scott wrote, Thanks for this, Chris. I missed the original debate, but this discussion was thoroughly interesting. I was brought up with the Trinity drilled into me, but I was also reading the Bible daily from a very young age, which is why preterism came so easily to me when I finally learned of it. And I'll be honest, the concept of the Trinity has bothered me for years. It's not that I disagree with what people say about the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. It's just that the way people talk about the triune God doesn't seem to be completely consistent with the way the Bible talks about God the Father, His Son, and the Holy Ghost. But I see now that you and many others have studied this subject a lot more in depth than I have. Listening to this show gave me a lot to think about. 
I'm still unsettled in my opinion of the Trinity concept, but it was great to hear about some perspectives I hadn't thought about before. I sure appreciate what you do. Unquote. Now, I thanked Scott for listening and appreciating the show and invited him to explain his struggle in more detail by emailing me, which he did. Here's some of what he wrote. I'm not going to read everything because we're already starting to run pretty long. And uh, my tongue's getting tired from reading. <laughs> he wrote, The New Testament talks at length about who the Son is, and Colossians 2.9 makes it very clear that the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. The precise meaning of that phrase is not totally clear to me, especially since in Ephesians 3.19, Paul prayed that the fullness of God would fill the Ephesian church. However, there is plenty of evidence in the New Testament to convince me that Christ and the Father are one, that the Father's thoughts are the Son's thoughts, and that those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. In that sense, I do believe that Jesus is deity and would even go so far as to say he is God, but I prefer to say that he is the Son of God because that is how the Bible describes him. And if he is the Son of God, that makes God his Father. The Holy Spirit seems like a simpler matter. <clears throat> it is the Spirit of God sent to us after Christ's ascension as our comfort and guide. Since it is God's Spirit and God is Spirit, John 4.24, it makes total sense that the Holy Spirit is that unseen Spirit in the world that is the essence of God himself. And when I say God, I'm thinking of God the Father, but since I've already linked the Father and Son above, I would also say that it is Christ's Spirit. This is supported by his breathing of the Spirit into his disciples while he was still on earth in bodily form, unless he was only preparing them to receive the Spirit, John 20.22. So as someone who has been reading the scriptures my entire life, my view of these three entities is this. God the Father, Christ the Son of God who is present at creation, was born into the world through a woman and has the fullness of the Godhead in him bodily, whatever that means, and the holy unseen spirit of God in his people. So far I think I agree with the mainstream church at large. What makes me uncomfortable with the church's view is that for centuries they have tried to box God in and define him in ways that are not so clear in scripture. At worst, they use analogies such as three forms of water, layers of a peach, and parts of a cherry pie, and I have no way of knowing whether these analogies really hold up, because the Bible isn't so explicit. At best, they describe a triune God, or a God in three persons, as the famous hymn puts it, but even phrases like that make me very uncomfortable. If God wanted his nature to be so clear, wouldn't he have made it clear somewhere in all those many scriptures? Unquote. Now, there was more to the email, like I said, I'm, I'm not, I wasn't going to read it all, but I think this pretty fairly explains Scott's struggle. So here's what I responded to him with. I think there are sufficient differences between Colossians 2.9 and Ephesians 3.19 that we can know they're not talking about the same thing. But I'm going to let that go for now since it would only be relevant were the Trinitarian case based solely on that passage. I would agree that there is a wealth of evidence that Jesus is God. However, I think the New Testament is explicitly clear that Jesus is not the Father, not the least of which is John 1.18, which says that Jesus is the unique God in the bosom of the Father. This alone demonstrates that Jesus is not the Father, but could certainly be buttressed by a number of other texts which tell us the same thing. As for the Holy Spirit, he is said to intercede on our behalf in Romans 8.26, and whereas oneness Pentecostals like James Anderson attempt to argue that the Incarnation allows Jesus as human to communicate with himself as God, which I hope you'll admit is no less clear and sensible as Trinitarian language, uh... <clears throat> Sorry, actually, no, I, you know what? I miswrote that. I meant, which I hope you'll admit is no more clear and sensible as Trinitarian language. Anyway, they cannot do this with the Holy Spirit, since the Holy Spirit was not incarnated. I know we at this point might disagree, but I think this is a small sampling of scripture which demonstrates that the three are not one and the same. And yet apparently we both agree that the scripture is clear that they are each God. Incidentally, Jesus didn't breathe his spirit into the disciples before he died. I addressed that in episode four. This again, which is just a small sampling of the biblical evidence we would marshal in making our case, is the reason why the church has historically defined God as a trinity. While I would agree with you that we shouldn't try and put God in a box, I do think we're called to understand him as he has revealed himself in scripture. And scripture has revealed that A, 
there is one and only one God, B, the Father is God, C, Jesus is God, D, the Holy Spirit is God, and E, the Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. While this does not in and of itself prove the Trinity, if what is meant by that is that the one God exists as only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it nevertheless does prove that God is multipersonal. Is it possible that there are more inter interpersonal relationships within the one God? Well, perhaps, but because the church has historically tried to limit their doctrine of God to what he has revealed, we don't go beyond what it has revealed. So yes, I do think the Bible has made it very clear that he is one and multipersonal. And while I concur with Michael that more was revealed in the New Testament, I do think a case for a multipersonal God can be made from the Old Testament and philosophically. In contrast, my problem with Unitarians like Oneness Pentecostals is that they assume that monotheistic statements and God's use of singular personal pronouns in the Old Testament prove that God isn't multipersonal. But that's a non sequitur. It does not follow. Based on this illogical assumption, they desperately try to interpret the numerous New Testament evidences that Jesus is not the Father in such a way that conforms to their Unitarian assumption. But Michael made a good point in our follow-up to the debate in episodes 41 and 42, which is that the New Testament shouldn't be interpreted in light of the Old. No, it should be the reverse. After all, Jesus Christ is the greatest revelation of God, and he revealed to his disciples what was not as clear in the Old Testament, such as in Luke 24, 25-27. Their testimony, then, should primarily inform our understanding of the Old Testament and not the other way around. I would agree that Christians have used poor analogies throughout the centuries to describe the Trinity, and because each of them fails, I try to avoid analogies altogether. Why should the nature of the infinite, transcendent God be able to be captured in a simplistic analogy from the material world? In fact, in a recent episode of the Apologetics.com podcast, a guest told of a friend who said were it not for the Trinity, he wouldn't be a Christian. To a certain extent, I feel the same way. The polytheistic religions and counterfeit Christian cults reduce the nature of God to a level we finite humans can easily understand. The monotheistic Unitarian religions and counterfeit Christian cults do the same. Only the historic Christian faith, which is fiercely monotheistic, but at the same time fails to come up with any analogy from the material world to describe God's multipersonal nature, presents us with a God who seems truly transcendent. I would therefore completely disagree with you when you say that the Trinity is a simplification of a God who so far surpasses our understanding. Quite the contrary, I believe it is only the historic Christian faith whose view of God lines up with the very fact that he surpasses our understanding. So while I wouldn't go so far as to say that were it not for the Trinity, I wouldn't be a Christian, I will go so far as to say that the Trinity is one of the reasons I'm compelled to believe Christianity is true. As for terminology, I think there are some of us Christians who share at least some of your hesitancy to use the term Trinity. A friend of mine, for example, and fellow blogger who has appeared on my show once. I'll use the term to summarize what I think the Bible teaches, but generally I prefer to spell out the, instead with... Uh, Sorry, what did I say? I said, but generally I prefer to spell that out instead, which I do think is very clearly laid out in Scripture. Namely, that there is one and only one God, that the Father is God, that Jesus is God, that the Holy Spirit is God, but that the Father is not Jesus, Jesus is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father. Once someone understands that, I'll more freely use the term Trinity because they know what it is I mean when I use it. So that's how I would explain why I think it's okay to teach that God is a triune or a trinity using such language it is not used by God to describe himself, because that which the term Trinity means is, in fact, what God has revealed to us about himself." Unquote. Now, you might be able to tell that I was preparing for an email debate, but to my joy and complete elation, Scott responded this way. He said, that was a very satisfactory answer.
I was glad that you said others feel the same hesitancy that I do. I don't disagree with anything you wrote here, and in fact you helped me understand a few things better than I did before. I also know, now understand better how to properly talk about the Trinity and put it in context. The way you described the Trinity as a way to show God's complexity rather than a way to simplify him was especially compelling." Unquote. I really was blown away when I read that, and I responded to him telling just how encouraged um, I was by his response. He wrote back, I could tell you were bracing for an argument, but the fact is I was completely expecting you to give me an answer that would help me. I've heard you talk enough to know that you've thought about these things and studied them a lot more than I have, and we agree on so many things that I expected to be enlightened. Like I said, my only real problem is with the use of certain words and analogies to describe God, and you addressed that fully and gave me ways to talk about these things properly. I'm glad we can encourage each other. How wonderful it is to be a member of Christ's body, edified by one another and unified by his love. May he bless you fully. Unquote. Amen. I hope you listeners are as encouraged as I am by Scott's feedback. Sometimes when we're challenged by someone on a variety of topics, but in particular the nature of God, we feel like we have little hope and anticipate just another unfruitful debate. But there you go, folks. Sometimes the Lord may be genuinely working on someone's heart and may be using you as the agent through which to reveal biblical truth to a person. So think through these issues, study the word of God, prepare yourself to answer challenges like these, and you may very well be the person that God uses to help change a person's mind. Now I've got one more bit of interaction I'm going to read about oneness Pentecostalism, and it's shorter, I think, than most of the others, so we're almost done, so bear with me. <laughs> uh, recently, someone who appears to be a oneness Pentecostal, although I'm not certain, commented on episode 37, which contains part one of that debate. Here's what David Green wrote. Holy greetings to you. I am now listening to the debate with Mike and James, and I want to ask some questions. In Philippians 2.6, this is his first question. In Philippians 2.6, this form of God, is it physical or spiritual? Number two, what is the nature of the servant's form Jesus took upon him? Number three, the glory Jesus prayed for in St. John 17.5, which he had with the Father before the world was, what became of that glory? Why Jesus had to pray for it? For Jesus at that moment of praying for what he did not have at that moment. Please explain. Number four, if it is accepted that Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, obviously in the mind and plan of God, then why cannot it be accepted that he had this glory with the Father, likewise in the mind and plan of God? Number five, to further establish three and four, with the church God foreknew his people. Now all the above means that God calleth the things which are not as though they were. Please explain. Number six, is Jesus in the Godhead or is the Godhead in Jesus? Number seven, more than one place in the New Testament, the expression God the Father is written. Why is it that the apostles in their writings never used the phrase God the Son? Number eight, assuming that the apostle believed in the expression God the Son, then with Paul, James, and Peter, would not have even one of them used the term even once? Thanks as I await your soon reply. The Lord bless you. Unquote. Now, I can't speak for Mike, and he's on vacation right now, so he doesn't have the ability to respond to these in writing. So I'm going to try and answer these from my less-informed perspective. <laughs> First, is the form of God in Philippians 2.6 physical or spiritual? I would say spiritual. It is the nature and essence of the Father in which Jesus existed prior to the Incarnation, and God is spirit. As John Gill put it, this phrase, the form of God, is to be understood of the nature and essence of God, and describes Christ as he was from all eternity. He was really and truly God, was possessed of the same glory from whence it appears that he was in being before his incarnation, that he existed, existed as a distinct person from God his Father, in whose form he was, and that as a divine person, or as truly God, being in the glorious form, nature, and essence of God. 
So that's a long way of saying that the form of God that Jesus was in was spiritual because it was the nature of God which he existed before he became man. Second, what is the nature of the servant's form Jesus took upon himself? I would say that the nature of the servant's form is not a nature in the sense of being physical or spiritual. I think that's what the next clause indicates, being made in the likeness of men. Rather, the servant's form is the condition of being a servant, rather than the one being served. Here's how Robert Jameson puts it. Emptied himself, taking upon him the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. The two latter clauses, there being no conjunctions and and in the Greek, expresses in what Christ's emptying of himself consists. Namely, in taking the form of a servant, and in order to explain how he took the form of a servant, there is added by being made in the likeness of men. His subjection to the law and to, and to his parents, his low state as a carpenter and carpenter's reputed son, his betrayal for the price of a bondservant and slave-like death to relieve us from the slavery of sin and death, finally and chiefly, his servant-like dependence as man on God, while his divinity was not outwardly manifested. These are all marks of his form as a servant. This proves, number one, he was in the form of a servant as soon as he was made man. Number two, he was in the form of God before he was in the form of a servant. And number three, he did as really subsist in the divine nature as in the form of a servant or in the nature of man. For he was as much in the form of God as in the form of a servant and was so in the form of God as to be on equality with God. He therefore could have been none other than God. Unquote. So, I mean, just to summarize Robert Jameson's point, the, f the form of a servant is the condition, the condition of serving and being treated as a servant. Third, what became of the glory which Jesus is alleged to have, had, to have had before the world was and which he didn't have during the incarnation for which he had to pray? Well, that's an interesting question. As Mike and I discussed in the post-mortem episodes, some oneness critics of the Trinity treat the word glory as if it can have only one meaning. But that sort of equivocation is absurd. I think that there are a few possible answers here. Albert Barnes wrote, The glory which he had then was that which was proper to the Son of God, represented by the expression being in the bosom of the Father, John 1.18, denoting intimacy, friendship, united felicity. The Son of God, by becoming incarnate, is represented as humbling himself, he emptied himself, Philippians 2.8. He laid aside for a time the external aspect of honor and consented to become despised and to assume the form of a servant. He now prays that God would raise him up to the dignity and honor which he had before his incarnation. Unquote. James Burton Kaufman writes similarly, in, uh, but Adam Clark, on the other hand, wrote, Let the glory of my eternal divinity surround and perpetuate my humanity in its resurrection, ascension, and in the place which it is to occupy at thy right hand, far above all creatures. Unquote. That's sort of Adam Clark's paraphrase for what Jesus is asking for. Now, I think that perhaps all of these ideas are what Jesus was praying for, um, that, praying that his Father would give him. But what is clear is that since Jesus had it with the Father before the world began, Inasmuch as the Father existed before the world began, so too did the Son. Of course, a couple of alternative understandings are offered, and in this listener's next question, he offers one. Fourth, if Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, why could he not be said to have had glory with the Father before the world began? Mike and I address this in the postmortem, and it's very simple. The passage he's referring to here doesn't say Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world. It says his followers' names were written in his book of life from the foundation of the world. See Revelation 13.8. Fifth, if God foreknew his people from the foundation of the world, and if God calls the things which are not as though they were, doesn't this further support that Jesus could have said to have uh, could could be said to have had glory with the Father before the world began? <clears throat> well, all God's foreknowing of the elect means is that He chose to love them from the foundation of the world. 
The fact that the omniscient sovereign god of the universe had love for the elect before he ever created them does not in any way, shape, or form suggest that there's any sense in which the elect existed prior to incarnation, in the same way Jesus did when he said he had glory with the Father. As for calling things which are not as though they were, the listener's assumption is that the language of Romans 4.17 has to do with speaking about something which does not presently exist as if it were presently existing. But is that really what the context is about? I don't think so. In context, Paul is talking about a promise God made to Abraham of a future progeny. And Paul says that progeny is, in a spiritual sense, Gentiles, who by faith are saved. Which, of course, goes contrary to oneness Pentecostal doctrine. But anyway, in other words, Paul is talking about things which God brings into existence. In this case, Abraham's spiritual descendants. Notice, too, Paul speaks of God as giving life to the dead, not speaking of the dead as if living. This is why the NASB, NIV, ESV, and NLT all render the verse in a way which depicts God as bringing things into existence which did not formerly exist. So no, this language does not support the oneness Pentecostal understanding of John 17 at all. I will point out, by the way, that since the language Paul quotes in and surrounding Romans 4.17 does not speak of future people as presently having something, uh, or, or, yeah, exactly, does not speak of future people as presently having something, even if the context did not militate against this listener's proposal, which it does, it would still not support the listener's contention, because it doesn't talk about somebody that doesn't yet exist as having something already. Sixth, is Jesus in the Godhead, or is the Godhead in Jesus? Well, presumably this listener is referring to the King James Version's translation of Colossians 2.9, and of course I'm forced to acknowledge that whatever Colossians 2.9 is referring to, the fullness of it is in Jesus, not the way the way around. But the real question then is not, is the Godhead in Jesus? But what is Paul saying in Colossians 2.9 is fully in Christ? The word is theates and means the state or essence or nature of being God. This is in contrast to the traditional understanding, perhaps, of Godhead, which is sort of a way of referring to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit collectively. So Paul is not saying the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dwell fully in the Son, and no Trinitarian is suggesting it does. Well, okay, well, I shouldn't speak so universally. That's not what I'm saying anyway. But as NASB puts it, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It is a divine nature, which is fully in Christ, the state of being God, Godness, so to speak. As Mike put it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all equally exhaust completely what it is to be God. Now at this point, oneness Pentecostals may try and play what I think is a silly semantic game, arguing that this means the Trinitarian is forced to say that Jesus is three people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or something to that effect. But that's nonsense. The fact that the fullness of Godness is in Christ does not mean that if God is eternally three persons, all of them must therefore be in Christ. It means Christ is fully God, every bit as much as the Father is fully God, every bit as much as the Holy Spirit is fully God. Each of them fully and equally exhaust completely what it is to be God. Seventh, why is the phrase God the Father used but not God the Son? Uh, and I'll answer this together, together with the eighth question, which is why didn't the apostles use the phrase God the Son if they believed in that expression? Well, I don't think they believed in the expression God the Son, uh, and asking why they didn't use that expression, given their use of God the Father, is an attempt to argue from silence. It's clear to me they believe Jesus is and always was God, and that's enough for me. I don't care if they chose or chose not to use the phrase God the Son. So anyway, there you go, folks. If Mike has any further thoughts when he gets back from vacation, I'll share them with you. But for now, I hope that helps you with challenges leveled against the Trinity by Oneness Pentecostals. 
Alright, well, I'm exhausted from <laughs> reading so much of this interaction between me and my listeners. Um, I enjoyed it, though. I, I hope you weren't too bored by it. If, if you found it interesting, or if you want me to respond to some of the things, that, some of the comments you might have on my show, uh, please contact me at theapologetics at hotmail.com, or you know, leave a comment on my Facebook page. I, I, at this point, still do not receive a ton of feedback, and so I've got more time than perhaps I will in the future to respond to everything that I get. Um, but anyway, if you don't, if you didn't enjoy this, let me know that too, so that I can uh, maybe avoid doing it in the future. Um, like I said, it was just a way to fill the time between this and the next episode, which um, I'm not sure what it's going to be. Like I said, it might be the Joel B. Green episode on physicalism, might be IHOP, might be the um, uh, restorationist movement. Not exactly sure. And then, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm also working on the next episode of the Kicking Some Left Behind series on the Preterist podcast, which I hope you'll look forward to. And I hope that you'll stay tuned for whatever the next episode is of the The Apologetics Podcast. Until then...